0: the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, constant listeners, to episode 200. Technically speaking, there's been more than 200 episodes with bonus episodes and and such, but this is officially the 200th episode, which is an incredible... Incredible moment! Like this is this is crazy. When I started this this podcast, I didn't expect that I'd get to two hundred episodes back in twenty fourteen. But here we are, and on this uh, this evening or uh, morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening to it, this uh, this this day's worth of episode, I'm going to discuss uh, some Stephen King news. I'm going to read some emails, uh, go through some iTunes reviews, and I will review. The Pet Cemetery movie. So, up first, uh, what I'm going to do in the last episode back in February, and here we are in April. So, I apologize for the wait, guys. But um, you know, with the Pet Cemetery movie having just come out, I thought that it was time. Um, in fact, I, I apologize that I wasn't able to get to the review earlier. Um, I wasn't able to see the movie until Sunday night, um, and now it is uh, Wednesday. So. Um, You know, just just life isn't as easy for me to uh, be able to review these things as quickly as as I would like. Um, But I did see it within the week, so that is is a plus. But um, last time I recorded an episode and put it out, uh, one of the news bits that I had covered was the announcement that CBS All Access, which is definitely making a name for itself with the, the Star Trek show and The Twilight Zone, um, what they're going to be, uh, what's going to be joining that is the stand. There will be a stand, um, mini series. Uh, I can't remember if it's going to be a series or a mini series. I, 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 don't, I don't remember, but I had asked everyone out there to, uh, to fan cast it. If you could cast the show, who would you cast it with? Who are the actors that would play your favorite characters? So um, I had a few responses. Up first is from Cosmo, who writes, Stu, um, Emil Hirsch, is that how you pronounce his name? Emil Hirsch? Uh, Franny, Zoe Deutsch, Harold, Matteo, Arias, Larry, Donald Glover, Nick, Ansel Elgort. I don't know if you can have an Ansel Elgort and an Emil Hirsch in the same movie. I think that... Uh, um, I think the, the space-time uh, would just fold into itself. Uh, Tom would be Keir Gilchrist. Ralph would be Jack Black. Glenn would be Danny Glover. Nadine would be Catherine Watterson. Uh, Joe slash Leo would be Atticus Schaefer. Lloyd will be David Anders. Trashcan Man would be David Hornsby. Randall Flagg. Brendan Sexton III. Mother Abigail. Nichelle Nichols. So of these people i know of one two three four five and six so i can't really comment on on many of them but cosmo thank you for writing um okay and then we have steve who writes i spent hours on this and i think that's a winner i think that i nailed my flag oldman spoiler alert oldman can do anything see true romance and he's one of the best character actors in history I put a few big names in to anchor it and filled the rest in with those who are great and have the likeness if necessary. Tell me what you think. Mother Abigail, Viola Davis, Stu Redman, Joaquin Phoenix, Franny, Kate Winslet, Larry Underwood, Dean Winters, Nadine Cross, Crystal Teeny, Harold, Eller Coltrane, Nick Andros, Josh Hutcherson, Tom Coleman, Sam Coleman, who played young Hodor, Paul, Richard Jenkins. I don't know who Paul is. It's not ringing a bell, but, um, Richard Jenkins, uh, is a fantastic, uh, actor. And I think that he would play an amazing Glenn, uh, flag is Gary Oldman, Lloyd, Domino Gleason, poke, Paul Dano, trash, Crispin Glover, the kid, Michael Shannon. Okay. Um, I do know most of these people, uh, and those are definitely interesting picks and then we have Clay, who writes Long Days and Pleasant Nights. I was very excited to hear you return to Stephen King cast. I'm sorry to hear about the poor health of your dog. It's always a hard time. My wife is still recovering from the loss of her cat last year, who she had for 16 plus years. Speaking of animals, I finally finished The Tommyknockers. It suffered from what more than a few of Stephen King's works suffer from, which was a slow, verbose burn before the Big Bang. Overall, it was an enjoyable experience. The imagery of the living dog battery really got me. Um okay, and then uh, Clay um, just responds to an email about Oi. Um, I don't want to get into uh, too many spoilers, but this is uh, I had asked him to share something with me personally about his his thoughts, and I just don't want to share it uh, well, actually, is there any... I just didn't want to get into any spoilers. So Oi is a character from the Dark Tower for those of you who don't know who Oi is. Okay, so um, Clay is not a fan of Oi. And uh, he says that my biggest beef with Oi is that he talks. A dog is a dog, and I get a dog. I feel for a dog. Oi is not a dog, so mayhap. That's why I find it hard to sympathize with Oi. Over Christmas, I spoke to my brother, who has only read the Dark Tower series and nothing else by Stephen King. Weird, I know, about Oi. Without any prompt from me, he proclaimed Oi to be the Jar Jar Binks of the Dark Tower. An exact echo to my statement in my previous email. All right, don't at me, guys. All right, I didn't say that. That wasn't me. That was Clay. If Oywood had simply been a dog, I can almost guarantee that I personally would sing his name at the foot of the tower. Um, Speaking of the Tommyknockers, I listened to that episode of the podcast and couldn't agree more with your description of Sister Anne as cartoonish. This got me thinking. Why not an animated adaptation of Stephen King's works? An anime version of The Dark Tower would be breathtakingly beautiful and 100% true to its source. I agree with that. I think that that would be um, the next step that they need to take with uh, with Stephen King's works. We've already seen an illustrated adaptation with N, not also to mention the graphic novels of The Stand and The Dark Tower. An animated adaptation seems like a natural progression. Lastly, the fan casting of The Stand. I don't know celebrities well enough to do full casting, but I'll toss out a few. Flag, Jim Carrey, a dark Joker-esque character exploration of The Walking Dude. I think Carrie's um, transformative acting abilities could have immense potential. Nick Andros, Rami Malek, all right. Uh, Highly unlucky as he's a little busy these days, but playing a deaf mute could be a role that easily fill with the very expressive eyes that he has. Larry Underwood, Bradley Cooper, why not? Well, he may be a little busy too. Glenn, stick with me on this one. Stephen King, it's not a huge role. He's been a teacher in real life. Retired associate professor of sociology wouldn't be too much of a stretch for him. How great would this be? Am I right? Give the good work. I anxiously wait the next podcast. There will be water if God wills. It's safe travels. Clay, Clayton of Indiana. Thank you, Clay. Will writes, dear constant reader. First, please accept my apologies for taking so long to respond to your letter. Things happen to be fairly hectic on my end of the time of your writing. And yours was an email that unfortunately slipped through the cracks. With regard to my expectations for it, chapter two, they grow with every passing day. I followed the casting news as they were putting a new crew together, and by and large, I'd say that they've assembled a solid team of actors. I eagerly await the first official trailer whenever they end up releasing it. I was almost fooled a month ago or so, but what turned out to be a very well-edited fan-made trailer that spliced together footage of Chapter 1 and some of the actors' previous films. In a way, it's surprising there hasn't been more promotion yet for the movie, particularly given how well the first one performed, but there's still very nearly six months to go, so there's time for them to ramp it up. I don't know how likely it'll be, but I do hope that they include some of the more cosmic, fantastical elements of the novel. The turtle, the macroverse, etc. It would serve as a way of building the the film's foundation without coming off as a mere retread with now older characters. How they'll approach the climax is what I'm most curious about. All in all, it's one of a handful of movies coming out this year that I'll be certain to see. I've also heard good things about the new Pet Cemetery. I'll get to that later. But as a novel I've yet to read, i have probably hold off on seeing that one right away. I'll also be sure to leave an iTunes review for you soon. All the best, Will. Will, thank you for writing in. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see some sort of It um, trailer very, very soon. I think that it was April, um, the year that It came out, uh, chapter one. Uh, i think that it was april when we saw the the first poster followed very very quickly by the teaser trailer which was if you remember it was fantastic so because the sequel has the same release date i think my daughter is up and trying to come down the stairs Anyway, uh, so because the, the, the second movie is coming out at the same time frame, I would imagine that the marketing would probably be the same. That would just be my guess. And then we have Will, who write. I'm sorry, uh, Brett, who writes. Howdy, fellow constant reader. I was just listening to your re release of Pet Cemetery when the thought occurred to me. Uh, so spoiler alert for uh, Pet Cemetery: uh, What if the death of Church isn't what starts it all? but is in fact the death of pascal what if the ghost of pascal is not the force of good that i've always thought they was but in fact just another part of the evil force that haunts the micmac burial ground yeah she's definitely trying to get down here we recently uh converted her crib into a toddler bed um and the last couple nights she's been fighting sleep really really hard but she's not crying so that's good um So anyway, uh, Brett continues to write, He is the one that sparks the curiosity of Lewis. What's the first thing that human nature makes you want to do if someone tells you not to do something? Want to do it. Pascal shows him where he needs to go, show him the deadfall, making Lewis less reluctant to go over when Judd leads him there. That it isn't Judd that leads Gage being killed. We know the Force can see into people's dark past, but what if we can also see into a person's dark future? What will happen if it applies a pressure to a person? The creeds were marked from the moment they arrived in Ludlow and stepped into that house. It's Pascal coming to Ellie in her dreams and showing her things that sends Rachel back to be killed. By the time he does this, Rachel is already too far away and Lewis's plan is already underway to be able to stop it. Um okay, so this is spoilers, uh, and Brett's gonna get to his thoughts on the new Pet Cemetery movie before I get to my thoughts on the Pet Cemetery movie, but this will whet your appetite until I get to later on in this this episode for my review. My thoughts on the new Pet Cemetery were the first time I saw it, I didn't like it. But the second time I saw it was, what if the novel we have read and its 1989 adaptation weren't his this story? This is the story pulled from another world, say an adaptation of the novel pulled through a doorway from Roland's Midworld. It'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Keep up the good work you're doing and keep the podcast going whenever you can like you have been. I know that it's hard. Life takes over um, and it's hard to get around to doing it. Till next time, Cy. Cheers, Brett. Yeah, Brett. Um, I, I am treating uh, Pet Cemetery just like that. Um, oh, someone's up and calling me. I gotta go, guys. I'll be right back. And I'm back, uh, man. She is. She is a lunatic uh, lately, um, but it's a lot of fun. I wouldn't have any other way okay so um that's all i have for for emails guys um thank you for everyone who wrote in and if you haven't done so already um feel free to write into stephen king cast at yahoo.com and uh continue fan casting uh the stand and, and and give me your your takes and your thoughts and up next what i have um are itunes reviews so i Cannot do this without iTunes reviews. The more iTunes reviews I get, the higher up in the search for Stephen King, um, when people search for Stephen King, the Stephen King cast is. So the the more reviews, the greatly appreciated. So I have uh, a few. Um, The first one is by Smith Koo, who writes, My favorite Stephen King podcast. Five, one, two, three, four, five stars. Great, thank you. Uh, The analysis provided by Constant Reader is second to none. There is a depth to the discussion that is missing in other podcasts. I don't always agree with him and occasionally think he is being a bit pessimistic or hypercritical, but his opinion is always grounded in reason. You can tell he knows his stuff and loves King. Also, I love hearing his dogs in the background occasionally during the podcasts. Haha. <laughs> so thank you, Smith Smithku. Um, thank you for the, the, the kind words. Then we have Cosmo Share who writes, Essential listening for Stephen King fans and otherwise bibli- bibliography. Bibliog- bibliog- bibliography... Woohoo. It's like a phenomenon, the phenomenon phenomenon from like three years ago. Uh, Listening to these elegant and persuasive deep dive analyses of Stephen King's uh, has become my completion ritual of a King book. In fact, I don't feel finished with any novel of his until I've listened to constant readers corresponding episodes. The host carries a radical idea into his approach of the show. Let's get serious discussion on modern popular literature Going to use a certain zeal usually reserved strictly for a classic or literary novels. King is a master commemorator and storyteller of our times and constant reader lets us know it and then some. Please keep making magic. Thank you, Cosmo. Cosmo, thank you for writing in. That's an awesome review. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Then we have Lena Boo who writes, look no further for all things King. This podcast never fails in comprehensive coverage of King's work. Objective, insightful, entertaining, and thorough. Uh, definitely a solid addition to your subscriptions. Thank you. Then we have uh, Drunk Andy 247, uh, who writes Great way to revisit King's work. I love Stephen King and have read mostly all of his work and movies based on books. Listening to the Stephen King cast is a great way to dive back into the books and movies and go over things. I look forward to all episodes and new ones as they come out. Then we have West Coast Cholo, who writes excellent book reviews. Great podcast to listen to if you're a new Stephen King fan. Constant reader is able to recognize the King formula that makes his novels so great and point them out in case you miss them or if you never really thought about it the same way. Thank you. Then we have uh, the Yank seven seven four seven seven, who writes best Stephen King podcast out there by far the best. He covers each book collection in chronological order, adaptations, both film and TV, even bonus episode linking books to other books and to the entire King universe. He also covered Joe Hill, who is Stephen King's son. Anyone who is a King fan should either start with his first episode and work forward or pick their favorite King book, find the episode for that book, and listen. Mike, thank you, Mike. That's awesome. It's a great review. I really appreciate it. These are awesome to read. Thank you, guys. This really makes my day. Then we have Brittany Loves Podcast, who writes, King of King Fan Constant Reader, the host of the Stephen King cast, is the perfect person to take you through Stephen King's over. His analyses are always enter- interesting, and he's sure to introduce you to themes, details, and background tidbits even the most ardent King fan may not have heard or thought of before. The podcast isn't without dashes of humor either, especially with the music selection. Um, and another bonus is the, vo- uh, the host's voice. It's so even and earnest, it's soothing. Thank you. And actually, binge episodes as a way to cope with anxiety and racing thoughts— Long story short, if you're looking for the best Stephen King fan cast out there, look no further than the Stephen King cast. It's a great informative podcast made for King fans by a true King fan. Brittany, thank you so much. Then we have the Fog 98 who says, just stumbled upon this podcast and love it. I've been a huge fan of King for decades, recently started from the beginning of King's titles and listened to the audio versions of his books in order of publication. This podcast will be a constant companion as I go through them again. Thank you. Then we have the decimator. She's up again. Who writes? (laughs) I don't know if you guys can hear her or not, um, but I'm going to have to put a pin in it, um, though you're not going to notice. That will be gone for a while. Okay. I am back, and hopefully this time (laughs) it has stuck She couldn't find her elephant blanket. She needed her elephant blanket. It was under one of her other blankets in her bed, along with a uh, toy lamp, a few books, some band-aids that she likes to hold on to, all of her animal collection, um, and just random assortment of items from her room. So she needed all of that in her bed, and she couldn't find her elephant blanket. But I think that um, I have saved the day, so hopefully she will drift off to sleep soon enough. Okay, Uh, then we have uh, the Decimator who writes, recent subscriber, but everything I've listened to so far has been excellent. Reminds me of what I love about Stephen King. You also, guys, I'm sorry, this is a very very, uh, distractible episode. You might hear the click and clanking of some noise in the background. This is the addition of our furry co-hosts, which have been referenced um, already in this episode. Um, And I do say furry co-hosts. So I know in the last episode, I um, made mention of uh, the fact that one of my dogs um, back on Valentine's Day uh, started having seizures, and it got really scary when we went to an all-night vet, and the recommendation was that I was going to have to put the dog down, but uh, we have um, you know been keeping him on a strict diet and trying to get uh, some more exercise in, and he's been receiving some insulin Uh, Twice a day and he's on some other meds and the little guy has made, I don't want to call it a full turnaround, um, but he's he's, uh, night and day from where he was back on Valentine's Day. He's still with us, which is what matters. So I had asked everyone for some thoughts and prayers so I could have a little bit more time and our family could have some more time with him. And thank you because it seemed to have worked. And here he comes to say hi to all of us. Um, he's doing good He's a good little guy And uh, my daughter who refuses to sleep right now um, Loves him dearly And uh, I'm not ready for them to, uh, to say goodbye to each other So all, all is well In an episode where we to be talking about dead pets I'm very grateful that I have both of mine with me uh, Smelling up this place And um, making background noise That will endear me to some listeners And drive some listeners nuts Um, Okay, then we have an excellent podcast for King Readers by Gunslinger19. The Stephen King cast is a terrific podcast for all King Readers, Constant and Occasional alike. The host, going by the pseudonym Constant Reader, summarizes and analyzes each work in a thorough manner, providing commentary and insights that may not have been initially apparent to the listener. Even if one disagrees with the host's rankings or interpretations of King's work, his insights are always thought-provoking. Moreover, in keeping with a podcast, focusing on the music-loving Stephen King— Each episode features music fitting the work showcased. All in all, I highly recommend this podcast. Then we have a really fun listen for any constant reader from me011400. Thanks for all the hours of enjoyment listening to interesting ideas about and enthusiastic cheers for Mr. King's awesome stories. Um, And then lastly, uh, we have um, (laughs) LW0056 who writes, and this is the best heading, uh, what's with the snoring dog question mark exclamation point question mark five stars I do want to state that um, he wrote five stars this is a great podcast but the snoring dog did not enhance the pet cemetery episodes please don't do that again sorry I'm sorry this probably was a first time listener who had listened to the re-release of um, the pet cemetery episode that I had put out. Um, without understanding that the dogs do make appearances and that they um, are kind of like a staple of, of the podcast. So um, I get it. I get background noise and podcasts. They can drive me nuts. But at the same time, you know, um, it's... Oh, I mean, work is busy and then I get home and then it's, you know, daughter time and uh, the dogs and I and uh, my wife, uh, we just don't have time to hang out with the dogs as much as we used to. So when I'm recording, it's important for me to be able to just... Oh, God, And my dog, my other dog, my non-diabetic dog just got into the trash and has a bunch of toilet paper in her mouth. I'll be right back again. So this is just life, guys. This is just life living itself um, and uh, exemplified in this podcast right now. Okay, Um, so guys, if you haven't done so already like i said the 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 itunes reviews really really helped me out um it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a few minutes if you haven't done so already to just leave a quick review if you like the podcast if you don't like the podcast then you probably shouldn't be listening to it and you should be doing much better things with your life Um, but if you do like the podcast then please um please 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 leave a review Okay, guys, um, up next, we have some Stephen King news to discuss before we get to the, the Pet Cemetery review. And up first, this is a big one. I um, Had I had more time, I would have done an episode entirely on some of this news because this news, what I'm about to get to next, is big news. Of all of the stories that have yet to be adapted for the big screen, I would probably argue that the biggest one— It is not Stephen King's story alone, but it's one that he had co-written with Peter Straub, and that, of course, being The Talisman. Um, It has been... The cinematic rights um, had been acquired by Steven Spielberg many moons ago, and the pairing is... It's a perfect one. Uh, Steven Spielberg uh, producing uh, the, The Talisman is definitely a... That is, that's an amazing thought. Unfortunately, we are not getting a Steven Spielberg-directed movie. Um, we are getting one that is directed by one of the directors of The Handmaid's Tale, which is a great show. Uh, it is not what I would consider a feel-good show. It's coming out this summer, and it's one that my wife and I watch dutifully every summer. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it, but it's definitely a hard hang and uh let's see so um mike barker is the the director and uh this is from den of geek uh and uh, the, the let's see who wrote this this article um john Savadra writes stephen king and peter Straub's fan favorite fantasy novel the talisman is being adapted for the big screen by amblin entertainment and the movie has finally found its director the handmaid's tale of veteran mike barker is set to direct a script um, by Chris Sparling Frank Marshall is producing with Michael Wright executive producing The Talisman tells a story of a 12 year old boy named Jack Sawyer who tries to save his mother from dying of cancer by finding mysterious crystal known as The Talisman his quest leads him to the territories A universe parallel to our own that's full of dangers. King co-wrote the novel with Straub, as well as a sequel called Black House. The book was originally going to be adapted into a TV series, but Amblin has since changed its mind, perhaps after the big money It Chapter 1 made back in 2017. Longtime King fan Josh Boone, whose next movie is New Mutants, maybe, uh, was originally set to write the film adaptation and possibly direct. Never fear, though, as Boone still has two King projects on the docket including The Stand TV series coming to CBS All Access, as well as a movie based on Revival, the Lovecraftian novel that is sort of King's version of Frankenstein. In the meantime, The Talisman checks off the Amblin revival fever that has taken pop culture by storm since the arrival of Netflix's Stranger Things. That is movies about kids going on adventures and fighting monsters. The It remake, which is now the highest grossing horror film of all time after grossing more than $600 million at the box office, focused on the Young Losers Club and was all the better for it. No release date has been set for the Talisman, but we'll update this piece as soon as we know more about the project. So, like I said, this is a—I'm uh, very excited about the idea of the Talisman uh, being turned into a movie. I just hope that is—it—it is, uh, it, it just gets it right. There needs to be a lot of conversation that goes into um, into making this the the the, the right. The right adaptation. They're definitely gonna have to trim a lot if they're going to make it into one movie. Um, so they, they they need to make sure that they know exactly which parts they need to trim, uh, because there's not a lot of fat for for a book that's as thick as The Talisman is. It is a lean a lean story that takes us across not one world, but two worlds with every character mattering in some way or another that matters to the story and matters to Jack. Um, so I, I mean, I, I want to see Oatly, the sunlight gardener's home for wayward children. That definitely needs to be there. That's some Pinocchio you know, nightmare fuel that needs to be in there. If they cut Wolf out, you know, I uh, will go on a rampage. Uh, I don't know what they could cut out. nor So I, I don't envy this director um, or the writer uh, because they have some hard choices ahead of them because uh, I feel as though they're going to have to cut something out in order to uh, not feel as though the movie itself is being rushed. So I don't know. I don't know. But I am excited for it. Um, even though I have doubts, I am excited. One thing I have doubts about but am not excited for okay, uh, is this. And this is from Polygon.com uh, from Matt Patches who writes the following. Amazon's Dark Tower series is actually happening but with a new gunslinger. The maligned filmed adaptation is in stopping a re- re- reboot from Blaine the Monoing Forward. Roland's destiny is to quest after the Dark Tower in perpetuity. So too is Hollywood's. Stephen King's Epic Fantasy series is officially moving forward to Amazon under the eye of MRC, which produced the recent film adaptation. The Man in Black will flee across the desert, and the gunslinger will follow once more. I'm gonna interject here. No. No, he won't. And no, they didn't do that the last time. Um, and as we'll get into, as Matt Patches will get into, uh, we'll talk about what this adaptation is actually going to be. But there will be no desert. There will be no gunslinger. And he will not be fleeing the man in black. Despite a franchise sinking box office return of $113 million worldwide on a $60 million budget and negative reviews from every corner of the critical sphere including this very podcast. Settling in the end with a 13% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 2017's The Dark Tower didn't dissuade rights holders from forgetting the face of their father. The Stephen King boom is real, and The Dark Tower books would find life on screen, even if it's a 40-inch one in front of a couch. Though a theoretical TV series of King's book is... Uh, percolated Mm -hmm. after the disastrous film version in January 2018 Amazon Studios head Jennifer Salke said that while she hadn't read any actual scripts for the Dark Tower series the plan was very much alive there was little word of it or when the project might spring to life or how long the company would have to wait until a relaunch of the property the answer was not very long at all according to Variety Glenn Mazzara The Walking Dead is on board as a showrunner with a pilot for a series in the process of casting up Making good on a rumor that the show could start filming as early as April, the report suggests that Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey are out as Roland Deschain, the gunslinger, and Randall Flagg, the Man in Black, respectively. Though there were early rumors that the series would directly reap the A-list benefits of the film, instead, with the series expected to adapt the early stories from the universe, um, like those featured in the prequel novel *Wizard and Glass*. The casting skews younger. 25-year-old British actor Sam Strike is reportedly playing Roland in the pilot, with Black Klansman actor Jasper Pakkonen co-starring as Flag. This is an aggressive play by Amazon. I don't agree with that. Uh, In the land grab scramble for eyeballs in the wake of Game of Thrones final season, along with the Dark Tower, the streaming audio... It's also in the works on a Lord of the Rings series set during the Second Age and an adaptation of Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time books. Amazon isn't thinking twice about the lingering effect of the Dark Tower movie, which after years and years of development, passing from J.J. Abrams to Ron Howard to Akiva Goldsman, sought to remix the mythology into a single digestible feature film. That didn't work. But in today's blockbuster a week pace, no one will remember either. Though the loss of Elba is enormous for fans of the series, the new Katet means a future for the series that could carve out anything King put on the page. Ka, much like the reboot cycle, is a wheel. Okay, here are my thoughts. Um, I'm not into this. I thought about it. And I understand, you know, they are going to be doing this story chronologically. Um, from Roland's perspective Okay um, So we are going to no doubt Be getting the Gunslinger test From uh, Book one The Gunslinger And then follow up immediately with the events Of book four Wizarding Glass I don't like this um, I don't like this because I don't believe that Flashbacks um, are meant to be taken out of their place within a story as the story is told. I have been on the record stating that I'm fine when changes are made to a story. Okay, so this is coming across entirely hypocritical. I get it. But the Star Wars series of movies would not work if they were told in the order in which they chronologically occurred. And I don't believe in watching these types of movies in that kind of order because let's just take star wars let's take the star wars saga all right episode four is the first one that is made episode four through six are the ones that occur first for us as viewers okay then episodes one through three episodes one through three are informed by and or comment upon what we know of characters and events in the subsequent chapters which we have already seen though they take place later on down the timeline as a result beats play out differently and characters stories unfold differently based on what we know right similarly with the dark tower series the reason why Wizard and glass and those early stories of Roland work as well as they do is because they serve to contextualize and function as a juxtaposition to the character that we already know, the character who is at that point set in stone. Um, To show the story of Roland in his more formative years leading to the hardened man that he will become is not what the Gunslinger story or the Dark Tower story truly is. the story of Roland as he is. And for those of you who have finished The Dark Tower, that's kind of the point, that Roland is Roland, Um, that he's set in stone um, time and again. So I'm not into this. I'm not into Teen Bop Roland. Um, I don't have faith in the production company to deliver on this. Um, This is now the second strike against the property because it just seems to me that when given the opportunity to make the thing that they want to make, they're not making it like the thing that it's based on. Um, I don't like the Harry Potter movies because they're too slavish or or lavish to the uh, source material, especially the first two. They're just beat for beat remakes. Um... And I don't think that that, it, it's it's a good rhythm, and I don't think that it allows uh, for the movie to stand as movies. Um, I think Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings is a solid adaptation. That is true to the uh, heart and soul of the books, but um, functions as movies and lives and breathes as movies, and it feels very cinematic. Uh... But what they did with The Dark Tower, the movie, just like they said, to, di- to make it digestible and bland, you know, it's uh, it was a bad move. Uh, I mean, and Game of Thrones was referenced in Matt Patch's article, and but Game of Thrones... Okay, so I can only say this from someone that has read a lot about A Song of Ice and Fire and someone that has listened to a lot of podcasts about a song of ice and fire without actually reading a song of ice and fire but um a game of thrones is based on and follows closely the events of George R R Martin's story of course you know with changes <coughs> here and there but it's not as if they they you know make it all Jon Snow's story or if they change people's backstory or they change the timeline. I know, I know that people get aged up and down. Characters are sort of combined here and there. Other characters are omitted. Um, certain plot points don't play out exactly the same. And that's all fine and good, but the story still resembles the story. Um, and this, to me, though it's going to pick up at a different point in the timeline of Roland, it just doesn't, to me... Say, okay, we have the rights to the Dark Tower. We're going to do the Dark Tower. Do the thing that you're making, that you want to make, not some weird version of the thing that you want to make. So I'm not excited. I will watch it. Um, I don't know if I will watch much of it. Um, But I don't... I, this just doesn't. This is does not appeal to me, and I'm sorry for anyone that is excited, and, and I don't want to rain on anyone's parade, um, but I, I, I just can't get excited about that. Uh, then we have uh, something that I am excited about. Talking about uh, changes that I'm totally fine with. Uh, we have Hulu announces. This is from Will Thorne from Variety, who writes, Hulu announces Castle Rock season two cast, led by Lizzie Kaplan. Hulu has announced a star-studded cast for Season 2 of Castle Rock, which will be led by Tim Robbins, Stephen King alum Tim Robbins, um, uh, Lizzie Kaplan, and Elsie Fisher from Eighth Grade. Great movie. Uh, Season 2 will center around Annie Wilkes, Stephen King's nurse from hell, who gets waylaid in the town of Castle Rock as a feud between two Warren clans come to a boil. Kaplan will play Wilkes, a superfan battling to overcome mental health issues. Wilkes is the central antagonist in King's 1987 novel, Misery, and the character was played by Kathy Bates in the 1990 film adaptation. Bates won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for the role. Robin's character, Reginald Pop Merrill, is the patriarch of King's iconic crime family. Pop is dying of cancer and in a reckoning with his family as John Ace Merrill, who will be played by Garrett Hedlund, trying to take over and is threatening a fragile peace with nearby Jerusalem's lot, there's a lot to this a lot going on. Elsie Fisher, meanwhile, will portray Wilkes's homeschooled teenage daughter Joy, who is starting to have questions about her mother's sanity. The cast for the forthcoming season also includes uh, Yusra Warsama, Captain Phillips star Barkhad Abdi as Matthew Allen. Castle Rock, which premiered in 2018 of July, is Hulu's second series from the King universe. The partnership began with 112263, based on a novel of the same name. The streamer reported that within the first day of its launch, Castle Rock became the most successful first season Hulu original when considering consumption and reach. The show comes from executive producers and showrunners Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason, J.J. Abrams, Mark Lafferty, Ben Stevenson, Liz Glotster, and King himself also serve as executive producers. Bad Robot Productions in association with Warner Brothers Television Producers. So for all of my thoughts on Castle Rock Season 1, go back and listen to those episodes. I had a great time listening to... um, Castle Rock, and I had a great time talking to uh, Dustin Tomlinson, one of the showrunners. Uh, showrunners just listed there. Um, so this looks like they they are you know just taking iconic characters from Stephen King and just kind of mixing and matching as they go. This kind of sounds the way that the way Brian Fuller um, played with <coughs> the characters from uh, the the Hannibal Mythos when crafting uh, Hannibal, um, without. Directly adapting the the stories beat for beat, it was kind of more of a, a remix that worked for me. Uh, so that's an example of change actually working because its truth was uh, was authentic to the, the the source material in in a spiritual way, if not a plot, um, in a sequential way. So I'm excited for that. I think that that is gonna it's gonna work. It actually kind of sounds like uh, a season of Fargo. Um, and seeing as how I haven't gotten a fix of Fargo for a while, I'll take my Fargo in Castle Rock season two. Um, and then, (coughs) sorry guys. Lastly, we have, um, from Deadline, uh, written by Denise, uh, Petsky, Julianne Moore to headline Apple drama series, Lisey's story from Stephen King and JJ Abrams. Apple has given a straight-to-series order to Lisey's Story, an eight-hour limited series written and executive produced by Stephen King and starring Oscar winner Julianne Moore. The series hails from J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot Productions and Warner Brothers' televisions. Moore will also executive produce. King wrote every episode of the series, which is based on his best-selling 2006 novel. It's a deeply personal thriller that follows Lisey two years after the death of her husband. A series of events causes Lisey to begin facing amazing realities about uh, him that she had repressed and forgotten. Um, So my thoughts on this are I'm happy for Stephen King that he gets to tell this story again uh, this time in Pog form, uh, sorry, uh, in television form uh, and that he gets to write all the episodes. I like that he and J.J. J. Abrams have this partnership. And this is a big, uh, you know, Apple Apple Plus, I think it's being called, uh, is definitely uh, starting to roll out its announcements. So that's, this is a big, this is a big first get. And Julianne Moore will be great as Lacey. That's a great a great actress to to cast in the role. I'm just not excited about it because I didn't like Lisey's story. Maybe this will be the Mr. Mercedes of Lisey's story. I did not like Mr. Mercedes and I very much liked Mr. Mercedes, the television show. So maybe seeing it in a different medium will make me actually appreciate the story more. So I'm going into this one with an open mind. Um, And I will definitely share all of my thoughts as we start to get closer to that date. Okay guys, uh, so the time has come. The time has come for me to talk about my thoughts on 2019's adaptation of Stephen King's 1982 novel Pet Cemetery. Um, so I, I think that the best way for me to do this uh, is to well let, let, let me back up a little bit. So um, I know that there's been you know talks about a pet cemetery remake for years. Um, and then it started gaining traction, uh, a couple years ago and the directors of Starry Eyes were attached to it and that did not fill me with a lot of confidence. Uh, the cast started to fill out and I said, okay, you know, I'm excited about this. This is, this is good. Uh, Jay, you know, Jason Clark and Amy Simitz and then John Lithgow, uh, which cracked me up and I thought would be good. And so, you know, I went to it with an open mind. Uh, the poster came out. I said, "Okay, all right, I'm into it." And then, uh, you know, you could listen to all my thoughts when the first trailer came out. The first trailer came out. I was not into it. I did not like the images that I was seeing. I did not like what I what appeared to be the tone of this movie. I had a bad feeling. I swallowed it for the second trailer. I said, "Okay, this is much different, much better." It's giving away the twist, which I wish that hadn't um i would have liked for the change that they made i I would have liked for me to have gone into that fresh but i liked the second trailer and i liked the second trailer enough for me to be like really excited uh to anticipate this movie coming out i wanted to like it i wanted to see it i was very very excited and i was upset when i couldn't see it on opening night uh, you know, not necessarily just for the purposes of this podcast, but I just, you know, as a Stephen King fan, I just wanted to see the new Pet Sematary movie. Um, I like going out to see horror movies with my wife. And so on Sunday night, you know, we, we went out and, um, had a great time in the theater. Uh, you know, we had a great, you know, night out with some friends, uh, at dinner beforehand. So it was just a nice night. I, I really enjoyed my time out and I'm going to get through it. <laughs> my positives that i had with pet cemetery before i move into some uh deeper thoughts about the pet cemetery so i'm going to start with something nice so the first thing that i would say um is church the look of the cat uh and the, the just the attitude of church really really cracked me up um i liked church the cat especially when he was eating the bird uh, in Ellie and I'm sorry, in Rachel and Lewis's bed. The the that was purposefully uh, and intentionally funny, um, which there are there are definitely moments of humor in this movie, some unintentional, um, but this definitely was one that was intentional, and it, it it cracked me up. And I already mentioned the change and spoiler alert for the the movie, uh, but the the change of the the child that dies is a good one i applaud them for making that change uh whenever you make a change to a novel or a source material or a remake you always um invoke the wrath of fans so for them to make this change knowing that it was going to uh you know, ruffle some feathers, I, I I applaud them for that. I like the change, um, and I like their reasoning for the change, you know, to keep us off guard, and just in terms of filmmaking and in terms of uh, just what they can do, you know, having a little toddler and an animatronic doll running around um, in place of the toddler is... We've seen it, and it's it, it runs the risk of not being frightening on screen. Conceptually, it's horrifying. On screen, no. Um, so yeah, I get that. I, I totally get that, and it allowed for a really good fake out um, in the trailer. And if we hadn't seen the trailer, it would made for a really good fake out in the movie. Uh, so I, I I'm totally into it. And then there was a fake out in the movie. Like they they played with expectations in the movie. Uh, which I really, really liked. I mean, Victor Pascal warns Lewis about his upcoming destruction, and this is immediately followed by uh, Church in Gage's crib in a very, very effective, very, very quick scene. I think with like a handheld camera, and it just it goes by quick. And there's an immediacy to it, and there's a danger there, and there's just a sense that something is wrong in their world, and all that was captured very, very effectively, very, very quickly. You know, then we had the Gage's drawings, um, you know, and, and so we think that, you know, he's telling his own, you know, foreboding, foreboding future, and then Gage ultimately walks into the road. And when I saw Gage walk into the road, I thought that there was a twist upon a twist. I thought that they were, that, that the marketing had fooled me into thinking that there was an actual um, change and that, no, when you actually plop your seats, um, plop your butts in the seats, that you're actually going to see Gage die again. <clears throat> but unfortunately uh, for, for for Ellie um, you know she's the one that passes away but that that was even to have gage until that moment um, to have the audience uh, you know think that Gage is about to die uh, to swerve you know they, they, they kept it going right until the very very end and so I give them credit for that you know and then there's something very special um, about seeing Lewis grab and save, Gage. You know, it's like he on like a it's on another level of the tower, he he understands that he saved him. He finally saved him. Um, but it's 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 like a it's like a horrible punchline to some dark joke. Um that that in the end, Gage is really the only survivor in this story. Um so I'm, I'm totally fine with the change and I like the fake out um, and the way that they played with the audience um, in, in implementing that change. Um, I also like the fact that Lewis is directly responsible for Ellie's death and that that adds a level of guilt um, to, to him and the decisions that he makes. If he had just killed Church like he originally wanted to and instead he tries to dump him off And it's only when Church returns from the state park uh, in the middle of the road that lures Ellie into the road where she is killed. Um, That's what causes it. But if he hadn't dumped Church and he had just injected Church, then that wouldn't have happened. Uh, The cinematography of the movie uh, was spot on. I thought that it just looked great. Um... Speaking of which, the look of the burial ground specifically... I don't want to call it the Mi'kmaq burial ground because it's not. It's not named the Mi'kmaq burial ground. In fact, they kind of shy away from that concept of the Indian burial ground. You know, they mentioned the Native Americans that had lived around the area but had fled um, because they had recognized that something else be- you know, lived in the woods and the wo- woods belonged to that. Um, so the burial ground as it existed... Uh, I really liked the look to it because it looked like when Lewis and Judd walked through the woods, they emerged somewhere else. It just didn't look like it was in our world anymore. And I liked that. I thought that was a cool... I mean, we don't see like another moon or alien stars. um, But it just... You know, it just kind of looked like an alien planet. Um... And I liked the idea of them as they were walking through the woods, crossing into another reality. Um, so I just I was into that. I mean the, the 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 fact that we see like the Wendigo hiding in the mist, um, which in of itself kind of I'll get to Stephen Kingisms and Easter eggs later, but it kind of feels like a shout out in a way to. Uh, um to the mist um but that that was that was a really creepy effective moment of this hulking towering creature in the distance in the mist and you're not quite sure what you see okay speaking of the mist spoiler alert strangely enough uh for Shazam Shazam uh Pat Cemetery is the second movie that I saw this weekend Shazam was the first uh there are at least two Stephen King homages coincidences uh but there are spoiler again for shazam in the rock of eternity there are doorways just like just like the dark tower series and it's great to see it in action we were denied it in the dark tower movie but we get it in shazam okay of characters opening a door um and seeing another setting outside of the door, and the frame outside of the door is not attached to anything. It just, it's just—it's a—it's such a cool visual, and it's a shame that we didn't see it in the Dark Tower movie. So we get the doors, and when one of the characters opens a door, there is nothing but mist within the door until a very familiar tentacle reaches out from the door and tries to attack the character. And the tentacle, like, it opens up. Okay, and it has you know very familiar-looking teeth, and it's just straight out of the mist. It 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 uh, um, it was great. It was a great little Stephen King moment. Uh, so you know between the Stephen King references and hey the Ramones, it was it was a there's a couple there's a couple things linking Pat Cemetery to to Shazam this weekend. So that was that was pretty fun. So I did like the the Wendigo in the mist, and then I also liked um, one particular moment in the movie of after Ellie's resurrection of Lewis trying to wash and comb uh, Ellie's hair. Um, I thought that it was very effective. I thought it was very disturbing because it was something so natural and so tender um, in a very normal setting, and it was just corrupt. And I think that the movie should have played more to that strength um rather than what it it gave us and i'll get i'll get to that more um similarly the dancing in the living room was almost there it almost almost got you you get a glimpse of um basically that's how my daughter was just acting about 20 minutes ago when she wasn't going to sleep but uh you know the something's wrong right she had put herself back in the dress which is creepy and she's dancing in the living room, but she's not dancing right. I'm into it. I was I was into that. Um, so more I think I would I, I would have liked more moments like that. Um, I thought it was effective when uh, the death was about to occur and the movie goes silent. The silence said, spoke volumes. And then after the death, when Lewis and Rachel are lying in bed and as they're talking, the screen is just flashing to memories of Ellie. Um, again, it was very reminiscent of the Polaroid scene when Dale Midkiff is screaming no um, when Gage had died in the original Pet Cemetery movie. It's very, very similar. Maybe a maybe an homage, maybe a shout out. I don't know. But, but again, it's effective... And I think that the movie could have used more like that. Um, I'm going to talk about grief later on, um, but this was a good way to show because I, sorry, I, I don't want to project onto anyone that has lost a child, um, but I would feel that if I lost a child, there's nothing that I would be able to think of other than my child. In wherever I was. So, to have scenes just be constantly interrupted with flashes, I think that it would be a great surrealistic way to show um, the emotional state of our characters. I liked that moment. I wish we got more along those lines. Okay, so those are the positives for Pet Cemetery. Here are my thoughts that tend to be negative. This is a very by-the-numbers, rushed, plot-driven movie where it needed to be, in order to be successful, a character-driven movie. I had reservations, as I said earlier, when I first saw the trailer, um, and I wanted to like it. I just can't. and. It took me—I'm I'm fine, actually, that I wasn't—that I took a couple days to release the podcast because it gave me time to think about it and really articulate my thoughts. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this is not a—this needed to be a character-driven movie. And the uh, Mary Lambert 89 movie is way more character-driven, even though they both follow like the same—it's the same—it's for any, all the changes, and I'll get to that. It's basically the same movie. But it's just done better in the 89 version. Um, And I know I shouldn't criticize it for what it's not, and I should just judge it for what it is. And I said this in the last last review when I reviewed the trailer for it. But I shouldn't fault it that it's not hereditary. But it's hard to not make that comparison when hereditary has similar subject matter and Hereditary is a divisive film among horror fans um, because a lot of horror fans out there don't find it scary. But I think that that depends on what you think horror is. And there's different kinds of horror for sure. And I think that the horror that you're, the, the way in which you create a horror movie or a horror story or whatever, your methodology needs to reflect whatever the content and the story itself that you're trying to tell. If you're telling a story about death, specifically the death of a child and the fact that the death of the child is symbolic for despair, the destruction of a family, the complete corruption of potential and dreams and life and hope, then you do something more and deeper and more profound than just jump scares and we get a very jump scare heavy surface level horror when I believe that we should have gotten a meditative, grief stricken, emotionally wrought, emotionally challenging movie that affects the audience into more emotions than just scared. I don't want to be scared. I wanted to be affected. This is a movie that I was primed for, all right? During the course of this review, I had to go tend to my kid about three or four times, all right? Um, There isn't a moment of the day where I'm not thinking about her. When my wife and I are able to go out to dinner, we think about her. We talk about her. And even though we're gone and we just saw her like 15 minutes before, we miss her, right? It's natural. Um, So the movie about the death of a child, this should have devastated me. And I felt nothing. And I think that that speaks volumes onto the failings of this movie, um, because it wasn't a character movie. These aren't characters; they're caricatures. They're, they're 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 ciphers where characters should be. Now, the the thing I think that actually kind of got me angry um, was the bedtime scene. There is a. It's funny that I'm talking about this again my, when my daughter wasn't going to bed. Um, anyone that has parents, ask any parent what bedtime is like for their child. Whatever the parent, whoever the parent is, you're going to get a different version of it. But it's going to be, it, it it's going to involve different rituals that are specific to that particular family, um, different idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, I, I mean, for us personally, I usually put her to bed and it, involves us uh, you know cuddling in you know my and my wife's bed with her for a little bit watching some TV reading a book just relaxing and brushing teeth going into her room um, now that she doesn't have the crib uh, she's obsessed with all these different lights that we have in the room she likes the lights on I do some reading I sing very specific songs to her um, and then the night concludes with me and her saying you know, I mean, we—I tell her I love her, but there are other ways to convey that with, um, very, just idiosyncratic terminology that we use that's specific to to me, to her, and my wife. You know, just little inside jokes. You know, like you know Stephen Kingisms for us, right? That you know, no one else would get, but it's part of the ritual. It's part of the routine. Um because that's our family and that's what we've done and it's unique to us. Other families have their own, okay? Do we get that in this movie? No, you know what we get? We get Jason Clark telling uh, his daughter, um, I love you, go to bed. And then he leaves the room, okay? Um, That just rang so false to me because it was a scene that dictated that the characters needed to have a conversation about church and not wanting church to come into the room and it was a perfunctory scene that just got to the point and left without actually making me believe that this was a father saying good night to a daughter and yes granted the daughter is older than my daughter but I, I i still did not buy it okay um i didn't buy it at all saying i love you go to bed it's it's, it's that's the least of what you can do in a scene like that, and it just wasn't enough. I mean, for a movie about death, for it to truly work, this movie needs to stop to a halt, a screeching halt where we don't have to worry about plot. We needed to stop um, before the death to show us what life is like for the creeds, and we needed to stop after the death to show us what death is like for the creeds in the aftermath of, of Ellie's passing. We just never spend any time with them as a family of, of just the creeds being the creeds, you know. I mean, we we, we see these rote little moments. I mean, we we see uh, uh, Rachel and, and Lewis, um, you know, after first moving there. You know, they get into bed and and they're they're, they're giggling, and they're laughing, and oh my God, they're so in love, guys. But I mean, it's it's so superficial. It is a paint by numbers way to show us that you know they're they're a loving couple, right? Um, but it it doesn't reveal anything about their life. It doesn't reveal anything about their marriage or their family, you know. You know, and and we see Ellie drawing where Lewis discovers the Victor Pascal picture, but that moment is about the plot of the Victor Pascal storyline, not about the family. You know, what are mornings like for the creeds? You know, what are dinners like? You know, I mean, I'm sorry for me to project so much about you know, my life onto this. But, you know, I mean, as you heard, I mean my dogs were, were running around. But when I come back from work and, you know, my my wife and I sit down to dinner. Um, you know, the, the the entire dinner is us just trying to have a conversation while at the same time trying to corral our daughter and keep her sitting in her chair and eating and not running away or running to go play with her things. Or um, trying to let the dogs into the kitchen because our diabetic dog can't have food. But if our dogs are not in the kitchen, then they're barking and that's interrupting my wife and I trying to talk. So it's it's just constant chaos. It's that chaos of family, right? Um, and I'm not saying that this movie needed that. But it needed something to show life and a family being a family, right? And you don't get that with them. I don't know who they are. So how am I supposed to care when a character dies in this movie because I don't ever get a a chance to see how this dynamic functions um, as a unit or who they mean to each other because they're not really characters. It doesn't mean anything. Um, So, I I mean... I could go on and on. I mean, like is what, what, what are things that, 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 families do? And it's going to be different for them because they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I'm going to get to that too, but uh, quiet time. Some families do like a half an hour quiet time. Do they do that? Um, like no screen time. Speaking of screens, like the, the, the grandparents are mentioned. How about a scene where maybe they, they're, they they're, they're, FaceTiming with grandma and grandpa. Um, you know, we, we just, we, we never see any of these characters, actually living we only see them on the plot assembly line we never see them living their life and we never see them dwelling in their grief um you know also you know another example of just being plot zelda the backstory with zelda sorry guys i know she's a popular character i know that she's an iconic um contribution to the horror iconography iconography but the inclusion of zelda in this movie it just never feels organic to me it just feels like a box that needs to get checked i'm going to get into this i'm going to talk about rachel at length which means i'm going to talk to um talk about zelda at length um and guys for god's sakes there there are a couple scenes that really made me like i said laugh out loud one of them is um it's not chekhov's gun okay it's judd's gun it's literally chekhov's gun uh If this was intentional and self-aware, it would be funny, but it wasn't. It's just sloppy. An open drawer with a gun in it discovered by a nine-year-old girl. Um, It it was absurd. It's an absurd moment of cinema. Okay, Um, So I will get more into what the characters could have been, but these are some examples of how this was a a plot-driven movie, um, and it needed to be a character-driven movie. Um, and then we have some performance issues. Now, look, I'm not into melodrama. I'm not, um, but I could have had some emotion from Jason Clark. Uh, I didn't get anything from him before or after. He kind of he played stoic throughout, um, and you know he falls apart visually at the end, but. I never get give me some emotion, man. You know, like I I really I think more and more about the '89 version. And Dale Midkiff might not be the world's best actor, but there's a couple things that he does right that I really like. And I I said it last time. I'll say it now. His acting with the kids was tender. It was earnest. It felt truthful. Um, it's those moments that I think actually work. That Little moments like that where he's like, I remember him talking to Gage and I think they were going like, oh no, like something like that. It was really cute and it seemed of the moment. It just seemed like a father and a son just kind of playing with each other and just being alive with each other and being in the moment together, right? So he was able to do that. His grief, okay, he wore it on his sleeve. I think he, he just expressed that fragility and complete brokenness very 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 well and just how fragile he was i don't get any of that from jason jason clark um and in fact his australian accent like my wife didn't know that he was australian i had forgotten that he was australian you know and, and i liked him in zero dark 30 i liked him in um battle of the planet of the apes you know i i don't dislike him as an actor i was excited when he was going to be in this movie because i liked him as an actor i just don't know where he was as an actor in this movie and i kept thinking he was doing something with his voice like he was trying to like mumble his words or like eat his words and show like a restrained, kind of like what Eric Bana did in uh, Ang Lee's Hulk, um, which I believe gets a bad rap. Um, if you watch that movie again and just recognize that Eric Bana is playing someone, he's not really projecting any emotion because he's playing someone that is emotionally uh, rigid. He's refusing to allow himself to express any emotion, hence his issues with um, Betty. But this is not the Ang Lee cast it's the uh Lee hulk cast it's the stephen king cast it won't go there but um i do like that movie i do like that movie uh but no i mean like i don't think jason clark is doing that here i think that he is i don't know if it's just a fault of the directors who aren't directing him right i wonder if these directors have kids or not if they don't have kids i don't think they should have made this movie um but no, I I just I I did not get anything from Jason Clark. Um, Amy Simons was fine. I I like her as an actress a lot. Um, and I, from the what I had read about this movie, that's another thing. Like when this came out on South by Southwest, like and it it like Twitter blew up. You know they 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 closed South by with this, and it's all anyone would talk about. And people that I I respect, who's whose um opinions i am usually in line with like are raving about this movie so that kind of got me pumped and i sat down and i really wonder if i was watching the same movie i don't know i don't know if it was the magic of south by southwest i don't know if it was just seeing it in a crowd of critics that just kind of got it you know they got swept away in the moment together i don't know what it was but um they liked it and they, you know, I mean, like, there was a lot of talk about Amy Simons and Jason Clark, and these these performances are great. And I don't know where these performances were when I watched this movie. John Lithgow was fine. Um, I don't like what they did with the Judd character the more I think about it. You know, they've gruffed him up. Um, and I just don't get it. You know, I think more about the Fred Gwynn, you know, who is playing a cartoon. In that movie, he's playing a cartoon in a bunch of performances of other people. But for God's sakes, I mean when you think about Pet Sematary, you know, Judd's the first person you think of and that's all because of Fred Quinn. Um, and, I mean, the accent is <laughs> so over the top. Um, but it's, it's lovable. You, you, you do love that character and that's a hard death because you have fallen in love with that character and one of the reasons why you love the character is because he's just genuinely kind. And I don't know why we don't have that. And why in this age we just can't have someone being kind for the sake of being kind and and not kind of have him be a little bit scary on the outside and his house is in a little bit disarray and he has a loaded gun and we see him through the eyes of a child in a pet cemetery and he's a little scary at first, but don't worry underneath, he's a really good guy. Like, why can't he just be a good guy? Like, if you go to Maine, and I've been fortunate enough to have people in my life um, who are from Maine who in the entire time I've known them, they have felt like Judd Crandall. They really do. They literally talk like him. And they're just genuine and kind people. They exist. They're out there. And they do live in Maine. So I don't know why we had to do away with that. John Lithgow could pull it off. I think, again, it was just the direction and the take on this particular character. So, um... And then, with this movie, for all of the talk of the change, okay, there's, and I talked about how I liked the fact that they changed it to Ellie, um, they just didn't change enough. Okay? You know, there's a child swap for sure, but, you know, to me, this movie feels very much like a near beat-for-beat retelling of the original movie, complete with a Rachel monologue about Zelda. I didn't like it in the original movie. I think it's hokey. So I was excited about this movie coming out for the sheer fact that I wasn't going to have to endure a monologue in which a character is telling me all about her backstory and her emotional hangups and her character motivation. And, and hopefully I would just be able to see it portrayed through more nuance, subtlety, um, and and more organically woven into the story. But no, no, because this movie isn't confident enough to make bold changes they even stick with the zelda monologue hated it hated it then and i hate it now um so i mean certain specifics might have changed but i would say that it's too similar to applaud the changes for being bold or saying something too new you know, I was in the, I was, you know, conceptually when the the the, the, the trailer came out and I realized that Rachel was going to be in the third act more as an active participant, um, I was excited. But when I watched the movie, she's still just racing back just in time only to have a couple minutes at the house. She's still just a passive victim. And the more that I think about it, guys, the more I realize that this really should have been Rachel's movie. Okay, in 2019, after the original novel and after mary lambert's movie why they didn't just make it rachel's movie and tell the story through rachel's perspective that is beyond me that would have been a bold retelling telling the story from her perspective you know what if we see her trying to deal with being home with a two-year-old that's not easy guys Um, having just moved to a new state in the middle of nowhere away from her family and friends battling a growing fear of death spurred by rediscovered memories of a sick and dead sister a husband so pragmatic he's growing distant there is a lot of emotional depth to mind from this character who we never spend any time with she's on the periphery as much as she might have some screen time she is on the periphery of the story itself it's still Lewis's story and Lewis is the one that drives them to Maine for a better life. But what is the quality of life of someone who is now just completely excluded from her, her family, her friends, her life? She's in the middle of nowhere. She doesn't get to hang out with anyone. Um, like I said, living with a two-year-old is not an easy thing to do. Um, and, and her just being overwhelmed by these memories of Zelda. There is a lot to be able to explore there. Um, for, for her personally and what uh, this would mean to their marriage and to their family and to the fact that this is a, a, a new start for them. And if it's not going well because one half isn't doing well um, mentally and the other one maybe isn't being emotionally supportive and might be swallowing um, you know the truth of what's occurring there, that, you know, there is a lot that you could really do. That would be great to actually watch if it was Rachel's story. You know, a family starting to grow apart when it was supposed to be given a fresh start. And it would allow Judd to do more. You know why? Let me tell you why. Because Judd would see it happening. He would see this new beautiful family. He would see the friction within it and something, hey, you know what? Like a cemetery behind the house, a rot in the center um, you know, of this family. And that would be the motivation for telling Lewis about the burial ground, thinking that he would be saving the family from unneeded stress due to Rachel's growing obsession and phobia about death. Why let death in the family if you can avoid it? By denying it, repressing it, it only gets worse. You see, this interpretation puts the focus on the characters. It would allow for the actors to share time as characters, inhabiting moments of emotion of change and life rather than just firing off plot points moment after moment after moment. I mean, at one point Rachel tells Lewis these last few months have been hard and I was legitimately confused. Like I had maybe fallen asleep for like a half an hour cause I didn't know what they were talking about. Like it would be nice for us to actually see that. I know guys, <laughs> I know that what she was talking about was Pascal. I get it. Um, but I, the, the weight of Pascal to me did not seem to be enough to justify that comment, uh, because it's not character base um, and it just skims the surface of the themes. You know, and this is a massive problem for me. The directors are relying on shallow scares throughout the entire movie, um, over the, the the dread and the anguish and the pain that would have come if they had been more interested in investing time with these characters over the plot. For instance, okay, I literally laughed out loud when Judd and Lewis are hiking to the burial ground. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Lightning flashes. Do you know what I'm talking about? The lightning looked like it should be spray-painted on a black van behind a sword-wielding woman in a chainmail bikini riding a white and striped black tiger. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense? Does that image stick in your head? That's what the lightning look like. And my wife turned to me and said, um, it just looked like they went to um, Spirit Halloween and picked up uh, just like background decorations and Halloween uh, CDs of like audio. You know, spooky sounds and lightning in the back. It looked and sounded ridiculously hokey. I mean, we get uh, just shallow scares and shallow scares throughout the movie. Fog, there's a lot of fog. And guys, I like fog. In fact, I've talked about how much I like fog on this podcast before. You know, the movie that comes to mind uh, that did it well, um, and the movie, and this movie knows what it is. And there's the difference here. It knows what kind of horror movie it is, is Insidious. There's a ton of fog in Insidious. And that's fun, okay? Because a movie like Insidious, a movie like. Um, uh, the Conjuring. Uh, these types of movies are—they're they're fun scares, right? Um, you know, the—I had such a good time in the theater watching The Conjuring. You know, the audience was just locked into the same just zone as we watched it, and there was <clears throat> just screams when there's a jump scare. The tension just like would 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 just ring you out. Um, because James Wan just knows how to just build tension for a very fun and cathartic jump scare that makes you scream and it's the kind of movie where you scream and it's immediately followed by laughter um, because it's 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 like a it's a, it's a roller coaster ride right um, and it's creepy and it gives you chills but it's it's very much in, in the in the semblance of Halloween not the movie but the actual season of of its um, a, a very it's a scary, But it's a safe scary, right? And that's the kind of stuff that um, that's one type of horror. And it's a horror that I tend to enjoy. But like I said earlier in this podcast, when you're thinking about the content and the themes and the story that you're going to tell, what is the delivery of the horror itself? Is it going to be a series of jump scares with fun horror? Okay? Um, Where it's going to get you scared in the moment? Or is it going to be something that's going to really keep you up at night with horrific imagery and horrible things happening that stick with you. And I feel like, again, it should have been the latter, not the former here, you know. So don't get me wrong. If there's fog, I like fog, but fog in of itself, it's not enough. You need to do something with it. Um, You know, I love universal monster movies from the 1940s, all right? They love fog. I love The Wolfman, ton of fog, right? But it's different. It's, it's a different type of movie. And it's not, it should not be a stand-in for horror in Pet Cemetery. Again, Zelda. The Zelda scenes were absurd. There was an effective dumb waiter scene in The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Everyone go out and watch The Haunting of Hill House. That is a character-based horror story that has um, that really explores and the examination of death in not as hard-hitting a way as I wanted this movie to be, but it really makes the characters wrestle with the concept of death. It is character-based and it's fun horror. Okay, it's a great mis- It's a great mix-up of these two different kinds of horror and. And includes a dumbwaiter scene. And the dumbwaiter scene in The Haunting of Hill House is really terrifying. It is tense. It is uh it's gonna stick with you, it might give you some nightmares, you feel for the characters, um, you question the safety of the characters, you question the safety of yourself, it is done so well. Okay, you don't get the this is laughable, the use of the dumbwaiter here. Um And I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to go there. Okay. I didn't want to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about those fucking masks. I can't stand those masks. Maybe you might say that I'm really nitpicking. I don't think I am. I think the masks speaks volumes about what's wrong with this movie. When I saw them in the trailer, I had a really bad feeling about those. I I had a really bad feeling about this movie. Um, And I couldn't quite articulate it at the time. I just thought it was not what this movie should be, okay? But to me, what these masks are is the perfect visual for the misunderstanding of the themes and the content of this movie. The fact that they would feel the need to put masks on children shows that they're trying to make a quote-unquote horror movie. When I think that the true horror of children carrying a dead animal to bury it in a child-made pet cemetery that's the horror you don't need a mask because children are supposed to be safe and the reality that children are existing in a world in which death is an inevitability and the fact that death will come to them most likely first and foremost with um the demise of a beloved animal that is the horror. To hide it behind a mask lessens the impact. Now, I'm not saying that watching a child, like say, carry a bunny through the woods is inherently, woo! It's not that kind of horror. But it's an image that conveys a concept of death. And death is the greatest horror That we have. And when you mix death with childhood. It is deeply disturbing on any level. When you hide it behind a mask. The focus is on the mask. And it's actually making that scene. Ten times safer. Than if you just had a kid. Having to deal with the fact. That his or her favorite animal. Or only animal. Died. And the fact that he or she is going to bury it like a little adult in a pet cemetery. The fact that there goes the innocents, they are now in the the thresher that is life that one day is going to chew them up, that's the horror, guys. Not the masks. The masks is cheesy. The masks is a cheap way to get Ellie to put the mask on for what is supposed to be I guess on paper, a creepy scene at the end that doesn't have any scares that isn't really creepy because it's just a murderous little kid killing a person that we didn't really get to know. Right? That's how I feel about it. I just feel like it is a it's just it's a sheen that's glazed over the story for aesthetic that's trying to remind us that's spooky, that we're in a horror movie. But again, I just uh I just think it would work better if it wasn't treated like a horror movie until it was a horror movie. Um so that's how I feel about the masks. I don't like them. And a couple other things. Just and these are these are nitpicks, like it starts off with an overhead sure and everything looks bucolic and nice and then we see a house burning and we cycle back to that at the end and we realize that's judd's house well, why why did they burn judd's house like what are the motivations of this undead family like that i didn't like any of that okay and, and i just feel like yeah like the ending it gets really crazy and it is its own thing okay and again i like changes but as long as the changes actually mean something but where's the logic? And you can argue that it's illogical because we're talking about dead characters, but like, does Ellie like? Is this Ellie just saying, "I am dead. I should have been dead, and now I need my family to be dead with me"? Is it that? But it's not Ellie. It's it's very clearly not Ellie, because we see Judd's wife, right? And it's so like a wendigo or just you know the, this horrific thing that is now just mocking both death and life. Um, so what is the, does it feel the need to reproduce? Does it feel that like, because that isn't a thing in the original, right? They, they, these undead characters exist to mock and to torment those that were foolish enough to bury the remains of their dead ones. And they come back as mocking, laughing caricatures, um, silhouettes of of people that that no longer exist right um to to mock and to torment the, the 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 living survivors this is different this is like when when the internal logic of the changes in the end don't add up because Ellie is killing Rachel and then uh she buries Rachel okay and then she tries to kill Lewis but then when Lewis is killing Ellie Rachel kills Lewis so why is she trying to kill my question is why is she trying to kill Lewis in that moment because her whole thing was to just kind of her she hadn't wanted to kill him at that point, right? Like she is a, a, a monstrous thing to just kind of haunt him. Like the, the idea yes, it's a cool little button at the end when you have this undead family and this poor little gauge, right? But what's the point? I, I get like there's no point to it. You know, like the, the, the conclusion to the original it is a man that is in such denial. And he has come full circle to where his wife was about death. Death for him was always natural. And from a a far, you know, someone standing on the shores looking out at the distance where it was just a concept and it wasn't something that was real to him, he could rationalize it. But the second it hit his family because he had never forced himself to actually think about it, it completely destroyed him to the point that he was in such denial about it, all right? he is going to continue to make the same thing until it claims him. That's not here. Like, there was a point to it originally. There's no point here. It is all style over substance. and It's just a waste of time. And what is, like, the timing is, like, everything about this movie is so fast. Like, I just felt like, you know, how some people listen to podcasts on, like, like 1.5 and 2.5 you know to uh two point speed like that's what was happening here in this movie like i just felt like they were just fast forwarding through everything that they could have just stopped and talked about you know to the point where like both rachel and lewis are 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 dragged by this little undead girl to the burial ground on the same night in two different occasions and these People are both resurrected on the very same evening. Just to get to the ending. Just to get to that visual. Please. Okay. So, clearly I didn't like it. And the more I talk about it in this episode, the more I disliked it. Um, And I know that I had... um, I feel like when I I watched the uh, 89 version... For the purposes of the podcast, I was surprisingly—I surprised myself in how much I, I didn't like it as much as I thought that I—I I had, because I, I had I had good memories of it, um, and so I, I remember watching and being like, "Huh, this isn't really this isn't holding up to me." But since then, even though I watch it again for with a very critical lens and and for purpose, um, in the years that have passed since then, I don't remember anything that I disliked about it. I just kind of remember everything that I liked about it and I am not going to remember really anything about this movie I don't think many people are going to remember anything about this movie I don't get any of the accolades that were thrown at it um and it looks like reviews have been mixed since then but I mean I'm jealous of people that are saying that it's one of the best Stephen King adaptations. I mean, I guess if you count like the Steven Weber uh, Shining miniseries if that's what you consider a good adaptation then maybe this is one of the best adaptations but for me someone that feels that Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a fantastic adaptation Um, clearly this is not in my wheelhouse this movie I think failed um, to do something new I think that by making changes and not fully committing to what those changes could mean and not living with those changes um i think it just fails i think it fail. i think it's a big dud of a movie um i mean even in it which i would argue that needs to convey a lot of plot um the fact that they gave us moments of the kids just being kids like in the room they had the Backstreet Boys or sorry back um, New Kids on the Block moment of them just being kids um, of them um, jumping off the cliff into the water just swimming around and talking to each other um, and then like you know just scenes of them riding their bikes we just got them we were just able to watch them be alive and just living their life and we also got them to do all the plot stuff looking for Georgie Going into the sewers, being attacked by Pennywise. We had, you know, going to the house on Nybolt Street. We got all that. But more important than that, we got to see them being friends. We got to see them being alive. So modern movies can do this. We just saw it happen. And I think there's a direct correlation with the boom and the success of Andy Muschietti's It. Um... And the fact that we got to know them as characters and spend time with them as characters. I mean, because like one of the most one of the more like fragile moments from it is Bev and the blood coming out of the sink, right? Like it's horror, yes, but it's also so much about her reaction to it, right? And what it means for her. Okay. You know, a girl that's going through puberty, that's having her period, that is growing up to just be. Literally doused in blood, it's a character beat that is also horror. It isn't a plot horror beat. Okay, clearly I don't like this movie. I don't need to dwell on it that much longer. There's some Easter eggs that I want to get to. Um, first of all, there's Cujo, and this was in the book um, in at Ellie's birthday party. Hilariously enough, you hear Judd talking about a Saint Bernard that got rabies, um, which is. I just want to kind of hire Judd out to attend birthday parties, um, and then we have uh, the doors. Much like I was just talking about Shazam, um, Lewis steps through doorways um, that that take him elsewhere. And I think that the visual specifically was um, homage was an homage to The Dark Tower. While driving back to Ludlow, um, there was a sign for dairy um on the on the highway, so that is a shout out of course to Stephen King's uh, most famous city. And then we have on the map Little God Swamp. Little God, okay um, uh, is a reference to uh, the Cantaz, um, which were first referred to in desperation. Okay. So guys, um, I am sorry for this downer of an episode. Want one? It's our two hundredth episode. It should have been celebratory, um, but instead, I just bashed a movie for um, for an hour and a half. Uh, so I do apologize for that. But I wanted to get my thoughts out, and um, now I want to hear your thoughts. So what are your thoughts about Pet Cemetery? Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? If I'm entirely off base, please tell me why and write into Stephen King Cast. At yahoo.com to let me know Um, and just give me all your thoughts on Stephen King so don't be strangers guys I won't be a stranger either Um, hopefully uh, my life will slow down in the next couple months and um, when it does I will be able to uh, pump out some more some more episodes I still have to go through uh, Lock and Key by Joe Hill this could be the summer of Joe Hill this could turn into the Joe Hill cast uh, for the summer because we have AMC's Nosferatu coming out in June. I'm very, very excited. Or is it early July? Um, regardless, I'm very, very excited for it. Um, and early buzz is that it's, it's really, really good. The trailers that I've seen are great. So I'm totally into that. And, um, Again, I have to watch Mr. Mercedes Season 2. I've got Lock and Key. So there's definitely stuff for me to to talk about. Um, And then there will be the uh, the trailer for It. Whenever that comes out, I will review that. And then in September, I'll have It. So uh, there will definitely be enough. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, guys. Um, There will definitely be enough for me to get through uh, the summer um, into the fall. Talking about all good things Stephen King. And then, hey, um, in the fall, we also get uh, the one-two punch of It and dr sleep and there was footage of dr street dr sleep uh screened at cinemacon um so yeah this is so we're gonna be getting a trailer for that soon enough and so we have good things on the horizon the world of stephen king um and then we have um the institute his next book coming out in october so there's just good stuff to look forward to so the stephen king cast though i am not as regular as i would like to be i am still doing it still plan on doing it so um i have not forgotten your faces Um, And I will continue doing this as long as you want to. So feel free to write in whenever you get a chance. Don't forget to uh, leave a review on iTunes, guys. And I'll see you here next time where M-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.